In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Good morning and welcome back. This is Brad Furlan, your host on Vermont Viewpoint uh, here at WDEV in Waterbury, Vermont. Great talk with Greg Ronaldo of Teachers Tree Service. He uh, he sure knows a lot. And uh, thanks to all our callers this morning and, and your questions. And if you didn't get to call or you had a question, uh, you can go to uh, Teachers Tree Service uh, website and learn more. I do want to mention off air, I told him my favorite song was Moonlight in Vermont, uh, one of them, and uh, it was written by John Blackburn Lyrics and Carl Sustorf back in 1941 or something, or 44, I guess it was. And uh, there was, uh, Fallen Leaves of Sycamore is one of the lines. And I asked him if there are sycamores in Vermont, and he says, Yes, there are. And in fact, he told me where a prominent one is. So I'm going to go on a sycamore quest and see what, see what they actually look like and, uh, play a little bit of Willie Nelson singing Moonlight in Vermont and find out what a sycamore really looks like. Uh, so I want to, um, just jump right in. My next guest is, uh, Paula Munier. She's a writer, editor, teacher, agent. She's one of, uh, Many of my guests who have so many hats that I don't even know where we're gonna, we're going to be able to start, but I want to welcome you to the show, Paula. Oh well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So um, for our listeners' background, I uh, I met you or, or heard you speak at a Vermont Writers uh, uh, event this summer, and you were the the featured guest at the. Uh, at the workshop and it, you were just your knowledge base on writing and, and production and, and everything was just so, so wonderful uh, that I was excited to have you on here uh, today. Well, it was so much fun to meet you and it's always fun to go to Jerry Johnson's house. <laughs> right, right. Uh, he puts on quite an event. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah. So um, can you give us a little background professionally right now? You, I know you're se- senior agent and director of storytelling for uh, Talcott Notch Literary. And, and right. what else? What are, what are some of the things going on? <laughs> well, I'm a writer. Basically, I'm a writer. I started off as a writer, as a reporter, you know, um, back in the dark ages a million years ago. And then I went into book publishing and I was an acquisitions editor for many years. Acquisitions editors are the people who acquire projects for publishers. And then I became an agent, and all along the time, I was still writing. So, And eventually, I got my dream job, not just as an agent, which is my dream job as a, in publishing, because I get to help great writers get published, which is it's kind of like being the midwife, right? You're, you're not the, the mom or the parent, but you are. Yard the midwife who helps deliver the baby. So I helped, I helped people get published, and, and that's a joy in and of itself. But also I finally became a mystery writer. 
about uh, well 2018. So uh, I'm a mystery writer and I'm an agent and I still teach and try to help people get published, you know, hone their craft and get published. Do you sleep at night or not? <laughs> well, I just like to keep busy. <laughs> I guess that's it. Plus, you know, this is work I love. When I got my very first job in book publishing, I had been a magazine and newspaper editor and writer, and I got my first job as a managing editor at Prima Publishing, which is now part of Crown, years ago, and I sat at my first meeting, and I realized they're going to talk, they're going to pay me to talk about books all day. This is heaven. And so for me, books are heaven. So I love every aspect of the publishing business. Uh, and so for me, it's not really work. It's it's fun. So if I was interviewing Davy Crockett, he'd start with Born on a Mountaintop in Tennessee or something like that. <laughs> uh, so for you uh, as a youngster, uh, when did you find that in your soul someplace was writing and and how did it begin? Well, I was born on an army base in Oklahoma. Okay. <laughs> and I was an only child. And it was back in the day when there weren't that many only children around, you know. And I was an army brat. So that meant I went to 12 schools in 11 years. And my friends, you know, when I got to a new place, I was always in a new place. I was always a new kid. And I had no friends until I made some, which took a while. And so my friends were my books and my dogs. <laughs> and that's, that's still the case, more or less. I thank God I have more friends <laughs> now as a grown up. But, but I still, books became my friends. And I would sit with my dog and I would read, 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 read. And it was my entree into a whole new world. Yeah, I, I love that. And you, you can travel the world with books, right? You can be on the army base, but you can go right. anywhere you want. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's magic, really. So for an Oklahoma uh, girl on an army base was the Grapes of Wrath, uh, Steinbeck's uh, <laughs> Dust Bowl book, did that resonate or, or just one of many? Yes, well, it was. And, and although I, think, I don't think I read the Grapes of Wrath until I moved to the central coast of California and lived in Monterey, where, you know, John Steinbeck spent a lot of time. Certainly, yeah, Cannery Row. Row and, yeah. Right, exactly. And then I read all of Steinbeck and became a huge Steinbeck fan. And it did resonate me, with me when I read it. I was, oh, you know, so rough yeah. times there. Yeah, it's interesting. I I read one sort of uh, off, off the beaten path Steinbeck book. I think it was uh, In Dubious Battle. And ah. I was totally taken by it and then went on this reading uh, streak of every book he wrote. And I just loved that journey. Yes, yes. He's quite a writer. Uh, and, of course, they worship him in Monterey. Yeah, <laughs> so I bet Canada they do. Road, you will see. Pretty legendary. And he made uh, standing around a campfire and drinking and uh, stealing parts <laughs> off Model T's kind of appealing somehow. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. That was his gift. So, when did you transition from uh, the the girl um, traveling the world by reading to actually um, putting pen to paper? Well, I had a ninth grade English teacher at General George S. Patton Jr. Junior High School in 
Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. <laughs> and she called my mother and told her that I was supposed to be a writer. So I was 14, of course, and when you're 14, you don't listen to anything your parents tell you. And so my mother was determined that I would be a writer, but I paid no attention to her because, you know, we, no 14-year-old pays any attention to their mother. But then when I found myself in college and broke, I was a huge magazine writer. That was sort of the heyday of magazines, Cosmopolitan and, you know, uh, all those great women's magazines and Esquire, and, you know, all of them. Some of them are still around, but, but not – not like the heyday then. And so I read so many magazines, and my goal was to be in a magazine. And so when I was broke, I thought, well, how hard could this be? I'll just write a, an article for my favorite magazine, which, of course, at the time was Helen Gurley Brown's Cosmopolitan. So I just wrote an article, and I sent it in. Now, this is not really how it works. <laughs> Even then, it did not work that way. You know, you only submitted stories through agents, that sort of thing. But I didn't know any better, so I sent it in, and they published it. I was 19. Amazing. And I thought, yeah, how hard is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I learned, of course, how hard it really was. <laughs> and Did then several years later, I found myself broke, divorced, two little kids, no, no, no skills at all except for just sort of immature talent for writing. And I wrote my way into, onto the staff of a business magazine in Monterey, and I never looked back. And during that journey of magazine writing, uh, I, I certainly have heard all the stories of the rejection letter in the mail. Was that part of the ups and downs? or? Oh, sure. I got lots of rejections. I mean, I still get rejections. <laughs> not, as, not as often, right? And, and I have to help my clients, who a lot of whom are debut authors, and they have to go through the re rejection process. I think it's like any of the arts. You know, you have to have what I call a magical skin. You have to have a thin, thick enough to, you know, to, to flack off all those slings and arrows of rejection. But you also have to have a, a skin thin enough to keep the creativity flowing. So I say we need a magic skin that, you know, bounces off the, bows and the slings and arrows but allows all the good stuff to come in, the good stuff we need to prime the pump of our creativity. You said you were like the midwife, so is this the labor part that's not so pleasant? <laughs> yes, this is the labor part. Actually, this is the morning sickness. Yeah. And the fall. <laughs> this is all of that. Yeah, the rejection is the hard part. But, you know, it does serve a useful purpose, you know, especially when you're, when you're just starting out. I think it was P.G. Roadhouse who said something like, the worst part about being a beginning writer is you don't know how bad you are, you know, and I think there's some truth to that. There's a craft here that you have to master, and I think that craft sometimes gets short shrift. It's, it's like anything else. You need that 10,000 hours. You need that million words, right, before you can really say that you've, you know your craft well enough to get published. And the rejections kind of help you along that journey. They can point out strengths and weaknesses in your writing that can help you the next time around. And what about that? Do, were the magazines at all helpful with directing you to sort of a better piece, or was it just a pink slip and gone? Well, sometimes it was just a pink slip. But, you know, I have found, like my very first job at that business magazine in Monterey, there was a wonderful guy there. His name was Tom Owens, and he hired me. <laughs> I don't know why, but he did. Bless his heart. And 
he taught me how to write. His redlining my work taught me how to write. And so I think that if you're lucky enough to work with an editor who will redline your work, a smart editor who knows the craft and knows how to make stories better, that is a shortcut to mastering your craft, working with a good editor. Very interesting. Uh, we're talking with Paula Munier, who uh, is a writer, editor, teacher, agent. Paula, I'm reminded of the old story of the uh, violin player who's at Carnegie Hall and he's finished his <laughs> concert and uh, people are coming up to him and they're saying, oh, you're a genius and uh, you're remarkable and all of this. The accolades were flowing like, uh, you know, crazy. And he goes, I play, I practice, you know, eight hours a day for 30 years and you call me a genius. Uh, <laughs> so the writer, is is it the same? Is, is that much of it as well? Well, I do think that, you know, we're not all Mozart, right? <laughs> we're yeah. not child prodigies. Most of us just have to, you know, slog away at it. But if we love it and we love storytelling, then the good news is, Practically everybody gets better, you know. I mean, not everybody can be a ballerina. Not everybody can be a basketball star. There are certain limitations, right? But when it comes to writing, I always say, you know, there's always that point in a writing class where people come up to me and they'll say, you know, oh, come on, just tell us who do you think here is going to get published first. And I always say I have no idea mm-hmm. because often it's the person with the farthest to go. Like I had this guy in my writing group, and he was really rough around the edges. He was a former Marine. You know, he – the rest of the group were sort of very sophisticated literary ladies, and <laughs> he offended them by his mere presence, right? So, so – Poor guy, they crucified him every week at the writer's group, and yet he was the first to get published because he took everything in. He went home and he got better. So the truth is is that if you're paying attention and if you're working on your craft, it doesn't matter how far you have to go. You can get there. It's really, you know, there's that wonderful movie, A Million Miles Away. Was that what it was called, A Million Miles, about the the first Hispanic, the migrant who became an astronaut? Mm. Called a million miles, and I love that movie. It's a great movie. It's a great movie about inspiration, and how you know he was this kid who went from, you know, his family traveled from lettuce field to lettuce field all over California, and you know he wanted to be an astronaut, which seemed absolutely impossible, right? Yeah, it could never happen. And he had a teacher, and his teacher told him, "Persistence is your superpower," and he became the first Hispanic astronaut. So I always tell writers, persistence is your superpower. Yeah, and I want to um, just go back to something you said earlier that I really love, even though it didn't quite strike home at age 14. But a teacher saw something in you and how important that is to to help recognize a, a soul talent with someone, I think, and uh, so they saw that in you at a pretty young age. Yes. Well, I was, you know, obsessed with books, right? And so I was always asking about books. And, and after that lovely Mrs. Barron's in the ninth grade, I went to high school at a Catholic girls' school in New Orleans. And Sister Esther took me on. She decided that 
I wanted to be a writer and that I, I was the only person, I was probably the only kid in the class who was actually interested in a lot of the, you know, things she was talking about. I was actively interested. And so, you know, she mentored me. And I think mentors are so important. They're so important as children and as students, but they're also important as writers in the adult world. You know, that's why I tell writers. Join your genre association. Join the League of Vermont Writers. Get to know fellow writers and your sister writers, and they will help you because this is, by and large, a very generous industry. People will help. They will pay it forward. Yeah, I've seen that uh, for sure. Very generous. Uh, I think about my own daughter who's 14, and we have about a 25-minute ride to school in the morning, and we used to have sort of lively conversations, but Percy Jackson's uh, changed all that. And she is literally reading and not getting carsick in our in our 25 minute journey. She just can't put these books down. How wonderful. Yeah, it's it's really uh, it's quite exciting. Um, so w- what about you? You've you've mentioned three places. Army Brat was all over. Do you have a book uh, in you of your your journey? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's a lot of my journey as a writer in Writing with Quiet Hands, which is one of the books I wrote on writing. It's probably my most personal book on the craft of writing. It, it, I wrote it after I'd been an agent for about a year, and I'd written a book on plot um, that was very successful for Writer's Digest, which I wrote you know, to help people plot their books. And that's basically I taught myself to plot doing that. I'd always been afraid of writing a mystery because I didn't think I could plot it properly. I didn't think of plot as one of my strengths. But after writing a book on plot, I thought, okay, surely you can write a mystery now. But I then I wrote this book called Writing with Quiet Hands. And I had been an agent for about a year, and I met so many writers who were this close, this close to being published. But they were doing something sort of basic wrong in terms of the marketplace or in terms of the craft itself that was keeping them back. And so I wrote it for all those people. So it's kind of a finishing school in a way, right? This one book, Writing with Quiet Hands. And I think there's a lot of my journey in there. But I also think that every writer's journey is unique and yet the same, right? It's unique because everybody comes to storytelling in a different way. But the storytelling itself, you know, there are themes and, and, you know, aspects that anyone can learn. And so you have to learn those. You have to learn the tropes of whatever genre you're writing. You have to learn the conventions of that genre, not so you can follow them slavishly, but so that you can reinvent them and breathe new life into them. And those are the people who get published, you know, who take the stories we love and breathe new life into them. So you talk about plot, uh, is an example of that for those who watch a Hallmark Christmas series, you, <laughs> you, you can pretty much uh, pinpoint every uh, 10 minutes of that, right, through the whole thing hey. when they, they have the argument and then finally the kiss and, of course, there's getting the tree and all this stuff. It's, it's just like so prescribed. Is that plot? Well, well, it, it's funny because, you know, they're the conventions of the genre, and the conventions of the Hallmark movie are very, very much set in stone. It's funny because, you know, they have Hallmark bingo, 
where you can print off a bingo card from the Internet. And then as you watch the Hallmark movies, and I watch a lot of them because my elderly mother lives with me and she loves them. And, and so, you, you know, things will be like handsome veterinarian. Ooh, there's your square. I got that one. Right? Or city girl goes to small town. Ooh, I got that one. Dog, right? Cute dog. I mean, there, there are these tropes, right? And, yeah. and you stick to them. I've had clients who, who've had projects adapted for film, and Hallmark is one of the most, we call it Hallmarkizing the book, right? So typically that means fewer dead bodies and more romance. That's yeah, yeah. Like Hallmark it up, right? So why is it, though, that, uh, you know, I feel like I'm a secret organization. If I admit that I watch a Hallmark movie, I'm, like, chastised <laughs> by the world. Uh, there there are lovers and haters of it. Uh, is, I don't know what I'm asking, but it's just interesting to me. Well, I think I think that every genre, whether it's romance or or whether it's science fiction or fantasy or mystery or thriller, every genre is known for giving the reader a certain kind of reading experience. And the reader comes to expect that reader experience, right? And so if you don't give it to them, they're not happy. They feel like they have wasted their, you know, 25, 30 bucks and their 10, 12 hours or whatever it took to read that book because they want you to hit those notes that provide that kind of satisfying reader experience they've come to expect from a given genre. So the writing challenge is to find a way to deliver that satisfying reader experience, but to do it in somehow a fresher new way. So is Janet Ivanovich sort of a classic example of that? Sure. People know they when they buy Janet Ivanovich, they know what they're going to get, and they love it. Yeah. So people always say to me, oh, you know, writers say to me, I don't want to be typecast. And I always say, you should be so lucky. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you should be typecast as a, as, as Janet Ivanovich. You know, that's not a terrible thing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's <not> just, <laughs> It, it is funny though, isn't it? Uh, well, I guess we all want to recreate the wheel and have the, the great American something, maybe. Sure, sure. And you can do that. A lot of writers find a way to do both, right? They continue, and that's why a lot of writers, you know, you have Nora Roberts and you have J.D. Robb. She writes under a couple names, different kinds of stories that provide different kinds of reading experiences. So, you know, I mean, you can have it all, right? It just takes time and effort yeah um the the labor of love i guess we would call it we're talking with paula munier this morning and she is uh just a a writer editor teacher agent uh army brat we learned we i don't i don't know if i saw that in your website but now now we know we've disclosed it to the world uh (laughs) Which means that, you know, everybody has a, a journey path, right? It gets us where we want to be. Um, Paula, I recently finished one of your murder mystery, your, your recent home at night, uh, placed in Vermont. Great book. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that it was number five in the series, although they're all standalones. They're written as standalones, but it's my Mercy Car series and it is set here in Vermont. And I love Vermont, my happy place. And I love the series because it has 
uh, a former military policewoman, Mercy Carr is the heroine, and her former bomb-sniffing dog, Elvis. And so, in a way, you know, as you know, I was an army brat, but I, I, I dodged a bullet. <laughs> I wasn't. They didn't have women at West Point. <laughs> when I graduated from high school, thank goodness, they did a couple years later. Otherwise, I'm sure my father would have packed me off, but I would have been the world's worst soldier. But but I always wondered, you know, the road not taken, right? And so many of my friends did go on to serve in the military, and I represent a lot of uh, uh, former military law enforcement kind of clients. And so for me, it was kind of a way to say, what would that have looked like, right? And of course, I had met these wonderful working dogs. And I've, I've actually, you know, worked with, and you know, the Vermont Police Canine Association, the Vermont Canine Police Association, rather, has been very helpful to me. And, and I've met their handlers and the dogs. And, and I just love all of that. So I got to put all of that into the books. And this one, Home at Night, takes place at Halloween, which, of course, is a great fun. We talk about tropes, right, where you have all those Halloween tropes. You have the ghosts and haunted houses and, and you know, witches and druids and all kinds of doggy parades, all kinds of costumes all kinds of great stuff to play with. So this book, Home at Night, is set at Halloween, and Mercy and Elvis have got this new, old Victorian pile haunted house. And, of course, she loves it. She had fallen in love with it when she was a kid because it, it was the house in the neighborhood where everybody, all the kids would be dared right, to go spend the night there because it was a spooky house, abandoned house. And, of course, when she goes with the realtor to see the house, there's a dead body in the library, and that sort of starts it off. But it was great fun to write because I had all the Halloween tropes to work with. It's all fun and games till there's a dead body in the library, I guess. <laughs> That's right. So I loved um, you started Mercy as as a, a child, and, and that was obviously, uh, you know, this is what you did, but it really set us up. For, for wanting more. Uh, can, can you talk about that? Because it's so important in catching the reader right in the beginning. Sure. Well, I wanted to show Mercy's attachment to this house. So when she was a kid, one of her classmates dared her to spend the night in this house, this creepy house, and she did. And she it's Grackle Tree Farm, and she met the famous Grackle Tree Farm ghost been haunting the place for 150 years. And then you fast forward to years later when the house comes up for sale and she's in the market for a house. And she remembered that house and loved it, even though it had a ghost. And that's how it starts off the book. She goes, you see the scene when she's a child and you see her meet the Grackle Tree Farm ghost and then cut to many years later when she's finds out the house is for sale, and goes to, to view it. And what is the Paula Munier experience with ghosts? <laughs> well, you know, I have lived in a lot of houses, okay? <laughs> a lot of houses. I couldn't even count them all. And so all kinds of houses, old houses, new houses, army quarters, you know. I've lived all over the place in all different kinds of dwellings. And I have come across, you know, a couple of ghosts. In, I once lived in a house in the Gold Rush country in California, and I walked in. It was an old Victorian farmhouse, 
And I just knew I'd lived there before. And I, I, I felt like I'd been there before. It was a very strong, crazy feeling that I've never really had anywhere else. But that house, I thought, I've been here before. I love this house. We have to, <laughs> we have, to have this house. And I always felt that way about that house. And then, you know, there have been sort of classic houses. I lived in Salem, Massachusetts, where witches are everywhere, you know, real and past and present, right? <laughs> witches yeah. everywhere. And and so we were always talking. They had haunted ghost tours and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, then I think, too, I live in a house now that was built in 1760. And I'm sure it's haunted, right? I mean, a lot of people have lived and died in this house over the past 200 and something years. Yeah. And even... The plumber who came says that he thinks that one of the walled-off spaces in the house was one of those hidey holes where they hit slaves on the way north. So you just never know what goes with an old, older house. Mm. There are I, secrets in every house. I can relate to that. I have a, an old farmhouse that was actually transported across the ice by oxen. Oh, cool. Uh, and, uh, it, there's quite a story around that. So you, the, the home at night, uh, I loved reading it for a number of reasons. It's, it's just a great read and, and congratulations okay. on that. But also, you know, I, I get to sort of look at my Vermont and how does the <laughs> research work for, for you for that? You know, you, you bring barred owls in. You bring the oaks and maples and, you know, all of that. What, what's real life and what's research? Well, a lot of it is, is real life because I just love New England, and I especially love northern New England. And last year I participated in this course through the University of New Hampshire, and I became a New Hampshire resources steward. And what we did was, what New Hampshire does, is they take people who want to volunteer to help save and conserve the natural resources of our state here in northern New England. And they teach us how to prune trees and trim trails and, and test for water quality and do all this stuff, right? And so I learned even more. Uh, I'm always researching, but I learned even more through this course and through my continued volunteer work with this organization. And so I have this goal, which is I try to put an endangered species in every book, just so people are aware of, of the beautiful flora and fauna of our northern New England and what we have to do to protect it and how it is under attack in ways that we don't even know. Most of us don't even know about it. I didn't know about turtles until I wrote Home at Night, right? Turtles are the most illegally poached animal in the world. Who knew? I didn't know, but now I do. And so yeah. these are the kinds of things that I love doing. And I love going out in the woods. You know, we have 19 acres of woods. And I love, you know, going over um, for the previous book, Wedding Plot. I try to put each book in a different season because we have the glory of the four seasons here in northern New England, right? And so I set that book. It was a wedding mystery murder mystery. And so I said it during um, the week where at Eshwabag, where all the wild orchids bloom, the lady slippers, right? Yeah. And it was wonderful. And I went and it was during the pandemic and I packed my mother up and we drove to Eshwabag and we walked around and we saw these beautiful lady slippers. 
And so that's the kind of thing I love to put in the book. And that's, that's one of the joys of writing the books. It's amazing. And, uh, you, you did that so well with, of course, the turtles. And, uh, interestingly enough, my first guest this morning was an arborist and we were talking cool. about the emerald ash borer and it literally uh-huh. wipes the species out if allowed. Um, and so what you're saying is, is real world. Uh, but, but I don't think people think about it enough. Uh, so. It's great that you're doing that. Wow. Anything we can do, right? Um, so in the murder mystery uh, series, the wedding plot, the hiding place, blind search, a borrowing of bones, and then home at night, uh, it, they have uh, Mercy as the main character. Is that correct? And and then it's yes. just her adventures. It's a standalone book, but do you, do you learn Mercy um, – similar traits in each book I'm gathering. Yes. And she has grown over time because when she comes home in the first book, she's just, she's, you know, returned from Afghanistan and she's lost her fiance in the same battle that took, um, you know, took her fiance. She was wounded and he, he was a handler and his bomb sniffing dog was there and now has PTSD. So now she's got the dog and they're both mourning their man and their mission and, and so over the course of the series, she's coming to terms with the war, her war experience. She's coming to terms with this dog that she's inherited, who, you know, does not too thrilled about it. And she's coming to terms with the transition from military to civilian life, which I have seen over the course of my life. I've seen so many people go through that transition, including my own father. And it's not an easy one to make. So, so I wanted to write about that. And I see that. That's a thread throughout the books, plus her relationship with game warden Troy Warner and yeah. his search and rescue dog. So those are the threads that, that connect the books, but they each stand alone in terms of the action, the mystery. We are talking with Paula Munier, a writer, editor, teacher, agent. Uh, your boots on the ground uh, person, you, you've, you've sort of done it all. You're an entertainer in terms of writing books that are, that – uh, intrigue us and but your instruction is a big part too you're you're helping people on their journey can you tell us more about that sure i mean i've been a writer for a long time and and so many people helped me along the way right i mean i've read and owned probably a thousand books on writing i've taken a million classes i've been to a million conferences i've been part of writers groups and i still do all that you know i think that Whenever you're trying to do something, whether it's, you know, knit or crochet or write a book or paint a painting or, you know, compose a symphony, whatever it is, you keep learning and you keep learning. And then you help other people along the way. It's a way of paying it forward. And so I've written three books on writing, various aspects of the craft, and and I still teach, you know, and I still do some conferences where I I try to help people. We do a our agency Talcott Notch, we do a, a first 10 pages workshop through Writer's Digest every quarter where we take a look at people's first 10 pages, which is so important because when you're sending out your work to writers and to editors and agents, they don't read very far, <laughs> right? Unless they're really hooked. They we just don't read that far. And I think people assume that we read farther than we do because we don't. We only read, you know, what we're looking for. And I think 
this is an important thing to know, is that when you have that book, that new book by that writer that you love, the one you're willing to pay hardcover prices for and pre-order before it comes out and get it and you get it and you're so thrilled if you've got this great book by this great writer it's going to be a new reading experience, but you know you can count on it because you love this writer. And you sit down with a glass of wine or a cup of tea, and you open to the first page, and you start to read. And, and you just feel like, ah, I'm in for a good ride. That's what we're looking for, and that's what you have to deliver on that first page. So we do these first 10 pages workshops, all kinds of ways to help people you know, hit that brass ring, grab that brass, brass ring of publishing. Because it's not an easy road, you know, admittedly, not an easy road. But it can be done. People do it every day. So help me with one aspect. You you know, there somebody may submit um, the 10 pages. And you've uh, – it's well written, but you've seen the 10 pages a thousand times over. Does that take them out of the running or – I mean – it means, I guess I don't know what I'm asking, but how do you create something that's exciting to you that isn't sort of repetitious of somebody else? Well, well, that's the trick. I mean, you know, I just, I'm, um, whenever I shop a work and I send it out to editors at various houses, what they're looking for is not just craft, right? They're looking for something Different. So what publishing wants is the same but different, right? Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's just like insert, just like, you know, insert bestseller here, only different. And my job as the agent and your job as the writer is to be able to articulate that difference, right? So if you take something like The Martian, say, by Andy Weir, okay, you could pitch that in three words, Castaway on Mars. Just like Castaway, the movie with Tom Hanks on the island, only Matt Damon is stuck on Mars, right? So that's yeah. what you have to ask yourself. What about my work is the same but different? And the sooner you make that clear, Andy Weir does it on page one. On page one, we know that his astronaut is stuck on Mars alone and has to find a way to survive if and until he's rescued. We know that on page one. And so that's a page one that not only gives us and a good example of the craft and his writing, we know he's a good writer and you can keep your attention. The craft itself is good, but also here's something we haven't seen before, right? The yeah. on Mars and it's hard science fiction. And at the time he self-published that book because nobody was buying hard science fiction, but he proved that there's an audience for hard science fiction. And before you know it, Matt Damon's in the movie and it's a, it's picked up by a big five publisher and off you go. So part of the challenge is not just to write it well, but to tell us a story in a different way that we haven't seen before. Uh, comes to mind Catcher in the Rye when I was whatever, 14, 15. And yeah. the, the first page there was swearing and there was emotion and everything else. And I had to read the rest of it. Sure, sure. Well, you know, I read that book when I was a teenager and thought, oh, this is so dumb. And then, and then I had two boys, and I read it again when they were teenagers. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm stuck in their brain. He <laughs> captured the, the male adolescent brain. And then I understood how brilliant it was. But how before, brilliant and how sad it speaks to us men, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, 
mean, it was it was revelatory for me because I didn't have any brothers, and I was an only child, so I only knew you know I knew my dad. I knew guys in the army who yeah. weren't talking about this stuff. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. And, yeah, and Holden so, puts it all out there. <laughs> exactly, and my boys, I it was really a window into their mindset, and I. Then I really appreciated it for the first time. I thought, well, this is actually brilliant. This is amazing. Um, but it just goes to show, you know, you most of us, our favorite books, it's right there from the first page. Yeah. So when you're um, getting manuscript after manuscript after manuscript and, you, you know, it's late, you're, the wine isn't even helping, uh, but <laughs> – Suddenly, are are you finding you're like a treasure hunter? Are you are you hitting that that manuscript and you go, oh my god? Oh yeah, absolutely. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for that ah feeling. Yeah. And when you when you find it, it really is magic, especially especially for debut authors, right? Because here's a writer who's been struggling to get published and working on their craft, and then they they hit it. Right, they, that they hit that magical formula, whatever it is, of great idea and great execution, and it's there on the first page, and it's it really is. It's like winning a lottery. I, I, there's nothing more fun as an agent or as a reader than to discover a great new writer. Yeah, uh, I think at the conference, maybe you or someone else said that you write your first book your whole life. Uh, is that is there something to that, or and, and it makes it a bit of a struggle too? <laughs> well, I do think that you know every writer, no matter how many genres they write in, ultimately it comes back to certain themes that that dominate our lives. And I think escaping those themes, even if you're writing about you know outer space, those themes still have a way of of popping up in your work. Uh, I think once you recognize the, those themes, and sometimes we don't we don't even know. I don't know what my books are about until I finish the first draft, and then I'm like, oh, it's really about this. Okay, mm-hmm. now I can go back and milk that, you know. Um, when we figure out what our themes are, it's actually quite useful because then we're not looking – we're not a writer in search of a theme, right? <laughs> we have our themes, and then we just have to find the best stories to illustrate those. So you have inspiration from Pierre Simon Fournier, uh, and uh, at least from your website. Yeah. Uh, and a quote, which I'm not going to read in French. Maybe you can. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of things in this social uh, network world, but the book's important. The book is so important. I mean, I think, you know, the pandemic showed us that book sales went crazy and that's because people rediscovered their love of reading you know reading is the ip for the the world right with half the stuff you watch it it is it was written it was written in book form first right it was a short story it was a play it was a novel and then they bring it to life on the screen so i think that you know, reading is so important and books are so important and I can't even imagine a life without them. So for me, I don't understand, you know, when people say they haven't read and, you know, of course, my boys didn't really read much as a kid, you know, even though God knows I <laughs> encouraged them in every possible way. My daughter read always, 
but my boys didn't. And I remember standing in line in high heels for an hour to meet George R.R. R. Martin to thank him because he's the reason my youngest boy, who's a complete digital native, right? So it was all about video games and all that kind of stuff and D&D and stuff like that until he went to college. I failed to get him to read as a child, although God knows I tried. Yeah. We did do Percy Jackson, and we did do um, Holes by Lewis Saker. We did do those. But then after that, he fell off reading, and then he went to college, and he came home with a book, and I said, is that a book? It was like a big book. I said, oh, my God, it's a big book. Are you reading this book? <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> exactly. He said, best book ever written, Mom. And uh, I said, what is it? It was a Game of Thrones. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Uh, and now so, he reads everything. Uh, fantasy. The spark so that worked. We have about one minute, Paula, but how do they, how do our listeners find your books, find your website? Okay, it's just paulamunier.com, P-A-U-L-A-M-U-N-I-E-R, or you can Google me. Um, you can go to careerauthors.com, which is a website full of lots of great free advice for people trying to make a career as an author. And, you know, just I'm everywhere, like it or not, I guess. Uh, but, you know, and you can go to talcottnotch.net, which is our agency website, and find out about my life as an agent. But that's also there on my, my personal website, paulamundier.com. So, you know, I'm easy to find. Uh, like, sounds, write a great story and contact me. Sounds perfect. And it, uh, one of the big takeaways here this morning, I thank you for joining me, is there is hope, writers. Keep at it. Absolutely. All right. Thank you very much. This is Brad Furlan, Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV.